Hey, I'm Michael Dorinda. And I'm Jake Bennett. And welcome to episode 123 of the North Meet Southwear podcast. All right, everybody, we are going to keep this one quick because I've got to FaceTime some friends tonight from Arizona and their time difference is weird. And so I've got like 23 minutes. So we're (laughs) keeping it tight here. So we're going to jump right in. So, Michael, you were talking about moving, then ping me over to AWS. Go. Mm-hmm. So we've we then Pingme had been on Vapor since day one. Essentially, well, like when we launched it, it, was day one. We got we got the startup credits, you know, the free however many thousand dollars it was, and it was fine. And as we started to get more customers on that, you know, we're getting more requests coming in. We're doing more jobs. We're sending more emails. All of this kind of stuff. So the the cost of of providing that service was was going up mm-hmm. faster than what we were onboarding customers. And then, you know, we get a handful of customers, like one or two customers bring on three or four projects. And then suddenly those projects are like 60 or 70 tasks, which is fine. Like that's, that's, that's on us. Point. That's what right. we said yeah. we wanted to, that, that was the point. You know, we, we, that's what we set out to do, that you could bring your project and we would monitor your project. And there's some contention, like, are we not charging enough and, and things like that? I think uh, we're still on like our launch pricing two years later, you know, our, our right. AWS credits have expired and all of that kind of stuff. And I think... Most of that is just down to, you know, we had a pandemic and I had a second child and I just never really had time to, to to work on it to like finish what our like launch set of features were. And so it's like, well, I don't want to, you know, come out of that launch pricing because, you know, we've had people beta testing it and they've gone through like two or three issues with, you know, with the database where they just get peppered with emails for ages <laughs> for like your task is gone, your task is back, your task is gone, your task is back. So um, I was I was not comfortable sort of, you know, changing the pricing or anything like that until, until the service is like ready. And, and I'm very close to that. Like I started, I picked up the alert channel stuff again. So I've got the email switched over now. And so it's just a matter of getting Slack and Telegram integration in there. And then that, that would be like feature complete for what, what was our initial feature set. And it's like, it's such a simple thing to use like anonymous notifiables in Laravel to say, okay, send this notification to email, send this to, you know, whatever else. It's just, the the mental hurdle that you have to get over that it, to to just do this simple thing, and you know I I finally got over it because I was staying with my brother. I got COVID. It was very mild. Yeah. Um. I had like a day of COVID and then six seven days of worrying that my wife would kill me when I came home because she was stuck <laughs> home with the two kids for a week. Because fortunately, the three of them didn't didn't catch it. So I thought, you know, I better make the most of the time that I've got here because there's, you know, I didn't have to do dinner at 5.30. I didn't have the kids running around. You know, I had that extra sort of two, three hours at the end of my workday to kind of do other things. And so I spent a bit of time on then ping me and, you know, you get sidetracked and you do like the wrong thing always. Like yeah. you're always oh shaving yaks with side projects. Yep. You're like, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna upgrade my dependencies and then I'm going to yes. like go and fix this bug that comes up every now and then instead of like really focusing. So... I'm at like 94% of the way done with the alert channel stuff. So the thing that I'm dreading now is doing the actual integration with Slack and Telegram. Email's fine because like email, just email that works. But having to figure out like what's a good uh, way to, and it's like fairly standardized, but like what's a good way to get the webhook URL to, to do all that stuff. Anyway, long way around that. As part of this, I thought, well, we're... Our our onboarding of customers is not keeping up with our growth in costs. Sure. Yep. Uh, and We're and like it. you know, 
Yeah. We're, we're outrunning it. And, you know, we're, we're out of those AWS credits now. So it's like we're paying with real money. Um, so it's, you know, and it was costing, I think the, the last bill was something like 700 Australian dollars. Um, yes. And that's, that's like, you know, all the money that comes in basically goes back out again to cover the cost of running the service. Like there's no, and it's fine. Like we're, but, but it's like, it's starting to outpace. It's going the wrong way. And so I thought, well, PHP 8.1's out now. Laravel Octane's a thing. Mm-hmm. Horizon's been around for years. I've used it before. It works fine. Let's like throw this all on a on an EC2 instance and go from there. And so, you know, figured out roughly where we need it to be. I provisioned a, a T4G, which is like a general purpose EC2, just to figure out like, do we need more RAM or do we need more CPU? Because it's hard to tell on Vapor because everything just like works forever. Scales you know, up. Yep. Scales up scales up forever you, you don't know there's no memory there's you know that kind of stuff is is sort of hard to reason about so i put it on the t4g i think it was a large and ran it for a week just to see like where do we need to go and the and the thing with the the t-class instances is that they have like baseline iops they have baseline cpu like you can't you've got this thing that that will burst but you have to keep it at like 30 percent cpu on on that particular the t4g that we were on you have to keep it no more than 30% CPU, which was fine. We were at like 28% and that was fine and IOPS were fine and we're still on RDS. Like we've kept that because that was always the thing historically yeah, that bit us. That, yep, that, that was the thing that, that always that killed us. That we would like slam the connections, that we would lose it, we, we couldn't keep up with it. So that that's that's still our most expensive piece. And so I've just left that. Um, and then the EC2. And okay, so we figured out, okay, we need CPU. And migrating those things doesn't very far. Yeah, I have no no interest in migrating the data from RDS to, you know, a, a, I don't want to manage MySQL. Like it's hard enough managing a, a server, even though like the, the management of that is happening with Forge. I, d- I don't, I just don't want that overhead. Um, but we figured out, okay, so we need CPU. Memory wasn't, like we had we had uh, two CPUs, two vCPUs and eight gig of RAM. And we were using maybe four gig of RAM. And, um, but we were sitting at that 30% baseline. So I, I switched from a T4G to a T, uh, to a C6, which is like a compute optimized instance. So it's still two, two vCPUs, but they're more performant. You don't have that 30% baseline. You can just, you know, smash it. Um, and, uh, four gig of RAM. And, and that was working fine. Like I switched it over yesterday. The good thing is like you just spin up a new server in Forge, you copy over, like it's a manual thing. You've got to copy over your sites and your SSL certificates and set up your deploy scripts and all that stuff. It was just copy from here to there. Update, Cloudflare, DNS switches across, everything swimming. Great, no worries. Kept an eye on it for three or four hours during the day yesterday. You know, kids came home, dinner, bed, whatever. And I was watching TV last night and I'm like, oh, but, you know, I'll just check this out. This is going. This is like nine o'clock last night. And it's like, I've got all these emails, like your task has gone missing, your task is back. T- oh, oh, I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> what is going on here? <laughs> the the one thing that I forgot to uh, configure when I switched across was to change the the EBS, the elastic block store, uh, that, yes. like the storage that that is attached to the instance from a GP2, which is like the default for everything for reasons, um, to GP3, which gives you GP2 on a... 20 gig disk gives you like 100 IOPS, which is not a lot, especially when we're very IOPS intensive. I forgot to switch it to a GP, GP3, which gives you 3,000 IOPS in the in the base, like the free tier or whatever the lowest, you know, the, the minimum you get is 3,000 IOPS, which yep. is like heaps. Um, but the problem with like with Vapor, you can just like 
scale up, you know, uh, tweak your configuration in your vapor.yaml file, deploy, and everything keeps going. With an EC2 instance, when that is pegged for CPU or disk or whatever, you can't get into it. You yeah, cannot screwed. do anything. Yep, I couldn't exactly. get it's so frustrating. You, you can't get into it to, you know, to dump everything that's in Redis. Yeah, I had this happen to recently. say, like, stop processing. Like, ah, so, you know, what What was the solution there? Well, it was like update the, the EBS volume to BGP3, get the extra IOPS, um, reboot it, you know, force it to re optimize this disk and whatever. Um, when you reboot it, it gets a new new IP address, so that stops like inbound connections. But obviously, Redis is still sitting there, or Horizon is still sitting there churning through. So it's like turn it back on, log in as quickly as you can, flush the, the Redis queue, yeah. like turn it all off before it like pegs itself. Got it all sorted out last night. You know, it was 30, 40 minutes of hairiness, bad times. I woke up this morning at six thirty, and I'm like, it had just started again. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like. And, I, and I'm not sure what it is because there was no indication that it was going to be this ramp up towards disaster. It was just sudden, everything was bam. fine. And then and then all of a sudden we were doing like 300,000 read operations in a five-minute five, five minute period when I normally wonder, we're doing what, a combined 3,500. I wonder if it's like 8 o'clock a.m. U.S. Eastern Seaboard. like No. Yeah, and I thought, but there was nothing because it was it was around nine o'clock that it started last night, and it was six thirty my time, so nine p.m. last night and six thirty this morning. So it wasn't like it wasn't even like a, a reasonable, you know, it was not like it was twelve hours apart. It wasn't like the same time of the hour or anything like that. It's just it seemed odd. I thought maybe we were being pegged by you know someone was sending, you know, trying to DOS the service or whatever. But it was just like out of nowhere, it went from you know a combined four thousand read writes in a five-minute period to, like, 300,000. And I'm like, I, I don't know what it is. I know that Redis will periodically dump everything that has in memory to disk. So if, like, Redis crashes or you need to restart the server oh. or whatever, you've got, like, that stuff. I don't know if it was that, maybe. Um, I was keeping, like, six hours of, like, previous jobs and stuff like that. So I, I dialed that right down to just, like, give me the last hour give me the failed jobs for the last seven days. Like just keep that data as minimal as possible because yeah. realistically we process that many jobs. If you've ever, if you've ever had like a, a reasonable volume of jobs going through horizon, you can't do anything with that information anyway. Totally. Yep. Like I know it shows pending jobs and completed jobs and all of that kind of stuff. But if you go into any of those things and try and like, you can't search it, you can't find anything. It's like yep. totally useless. Yeah, it's true. Other than to keep, you know, to, to look at the graphs to see, okay, well, we're roughly processing the same amount of jobs. Yeah, there's the hourly spike. There's the start of day spike. Um, you know, outside of the metrics, the rest of it's useless. I'm like, whatever, we don't need six hours worth of that data. I only want to see realistically what's what's happening in real time to make sure that, like, we've got enough processes running, that we're scaling that up fine. Like, most of the time it sits around 15 to 20, um, and then it, like, scales up. And this was the other thing with the with the the general purpose compute at that 30% baseline, when we get to midnight where everyone's daily job is run and everyone's minutely jobs and everyone's hourly jobs, like they're all just aligned. Exactly, they all, yep. And it's like for us to scale up from, you know, the, the baseline of 40 jobs to 50, like you can't, you can't say I only want to have 50 workers running uh, on a like uh, you could do this scaling and you know doing automatic load balancing or whatever else but on a single server you can't say in your horizon config i want 50 between like 11:58 p.m yeah, and 12:05 yeah, exactly 
um, and 40, you know, the rest of the day. Because you have to restart because that, you have to restart Horizon in order to do that. Like you'd have to update your config and then restart Horizon and it would then right. spin them up. Yeah. Yeah, I did wonder like, can I put a closure in there? But you can't really serialize a closure if you do like artisan config cache. You can't like it'll be whatever it is at the time that it's that it's cached, whatever that evaluates to. So Yeah, if you did like um, a cron restart on the five minutes before the hour every hour. Mm-hmm. Like, or yeah, the five minutes like before the, the hour and the ten minutes after the hour sort of thing. If you did like a yeah. Horizon restart and then you just somehow dynamically updated the config to say like we went this many workers at this time, this many workers at this time, whatever. Yeah. That'd, that'd be kind of crazy. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, now we're kind of around five, 6,000 read-write combined operations every five minutes, which is okay because you get like I, I've provisioned it so that we get uh 40, 4,500, 4,000, whatever it is, somewhere they're like 4,000 IOPS, which is like input, output uh, operations per second. I'm like, well, 6,000 in a five-minute window is fine. You know, it's not like we're sustaining that throughput. So it's it'll be interesting to see what happens in like, you know, in the next six to 10 hours to see if it just like randomly falls over again because there's no indication. Like you can't get into the server. You can't look at logs. You can't like, there's just no indication. This is the stuff that nobody, nobody thinks about when they're saying like, I want to build a SaaS. Sure. Like, yeah, it's all about like, Hey, I'm going to write the code to make it all work and it'd be pretty. And they're like, all right, sweet. I'm done. And it's like, Nope, no, no, yeah. no, no. Yeah. You're just getting started. Sort of. Like, yeah. Just getting started. And uh, like, this was us, you know, three years ago or no, it was longer than that. Like it was years ago. You and I had this idea to do this and we're like, yeah, we'll do it. And then we did it. And then it was like, well, wow. Okay. This is not like in, and conceptually it's easy. It's just like the volumetric spikes that like, you yeah, know, they're coming, insanity. but it's like, how, how do you deal with it? So it's like, and I remember some people reaching out and being like, Hey, like, congratulations. Like that's, I'm, I'm glad you guys got something. By the way, this is going to be way harder than you thought it was going to be. Mm. I think, I think it was the guys from like Chronitor, ping ping or Chronitor. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. And they were like, yeah, congrats. Love. This is going to be, you know, good luck. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> and and <laughs> like I've said. spoken to, to Shane, you know, a couple of times, uh, Shane's the CTO at Chronitor and, you know, we've gone through and he's like, you know, this is the kind of stuff that we're doing when I was talking about, you know, when we changed all of our endpoints to use DynamoDB and like aggressively cache everything so that our ingest endpoints could be quick and not talk to the database. Like we still do that now. Yeah. It's just that we're using Redis instead of Dynamo. And it means that like everything gets read out of cache and then the job gets dispatched to the queue and then we can kind of, you know, constrain connections to the database and things like that that way. And so our, our queue workers now, they run in like 50 milliseconds. Like every job is really, really quick Um the the metrics that we get out of you know for performance everything looks really good you know and 90 and 95th percentile for the the ping endpoint is 85 milliseconds which means that like 95 percent of every request that hits that endpoint is in and out in 85 milliseconds um of of what we've monitored so like it's really fast it's did you throw anything with octane or not really yeah so this and that was the other thing so we're now running octane so we've got two octane workers running like the whole this is what I was saying. Like, Vapor was good back then because, you know, we weren't paying with yep. it. It was great. Like, it's infinitely scalable and all that kind of stuff. But the cost is also infinitely scalable. And that's something you yeah. need to be aware of. So we were, we've reduced our cost by like 60% per month by, by switching to a single EC2 with, with RDS. And, like, the performance that we get out of Octane is, like, it's no slouch. Don't, don't, uh, don't be sleeping on Octane. It's... Uh, if if you need if you need like high performance in terms of your endpoints, definitely look into it. Like on Forge, it's 
it's so easy. You just say, oh, I want Laravel Octane, and then you have to go and configure a daemon manually. Um, but other than that, like, it's it's totally reasonable for what we're doing, and it's, like, it handles the traffic, no problems. Like, the only issue that I had was because of that CPU bottleneck, we had to yeah. um, make sure that, like, we could spin up enough workers that we would process all of the jobs within 60 seconds because if you don't get through all of the jobs within 60 seconds, then we start again and we start pushing jobs to say your task is missing, you know? Yep. Um, so th- those are the kinds of things that, you know, everything has to be done within 60 seconds. And I've, I've sort of, you know, tossed up, okay, well, do we need to spin out Redis to its own server? Do we need to, um, you know, have some smaller worker servers that, ju- you know, Forge does all this kind of stuff. It's just how how and when do do we do that? And like, the workers need to be able to spun up, be spun up quick enough that like, you know, you don't want to have idle workers there doing nothing for right. hours and of the day. Yep, yep. You know, you don't want eating to provision up, for... CPU cycles. Yeah, you, you don't want to provision for like midnight when the other 23 hours and 59 minutes of the day, you're not really doing anything. Yeah. Um, I mean, we know, we know that that is, you know, the, the time of day where it's going to be the most impactful. So you could spin something up like 15 minutes before midnight and, and after, but we're not there yet. It's just a matter of like smoothing over what we do have and then and figuring it out. So I'm hoping this is the same problem. This is the same problem like those power like the power plants have, right? Mm-hmm. I can I, I so it's like you know in these when it's in hot. these places like Texas, yeah, and I guess Australia too, where like AC stuff is just like super hot, right? And so I know like with the Nest, it will the smart thermostat that'll do like if your if your power energy provider has like they almost have like discounts or rebates, not rebates, discounts if you use energy at different times, right? So it's almost like, you know, like when you had free nights and weekends with like phones back in the day, you know, it's sort of the same idea. Like if you yeah. use energy in off hours and off peak hours, they will like give you the power at a discount um, because they have yeah. to do the same thing, right? They have they have to have the infrastructure to handle Correct. The spikes, but they don't use it most of the time. Mm-hmm. But they still have to maintain it and have it available because yeah. there's no way to, you can't like store that energy. I mean, like in yeah. huge batteries. So, oh, you can. Actually, I mean, we do, well, we do I mean, that, but we do, we do that here in South Australia. Tesla, you do that. Okay. Tesla, we've got like a hundred, I think it's a hundred gigawatt or something like that. Like just a massive battery sitting out in the middle of nowhere. And that provides a space load where, you know, if, if we need, if we need to like, you know, if we lose connection to the grid or we don't have enough, like, you know, we cut across. Um, and that happens in Dude. like sub-second times. It's it's incredible was, the, the technology in that battery. We've got, I think we've got like two or three sites now in Australia, and there's and there's I think another one coming soon-ish. But and and the thing is, we've got like plentiful. Sun, we've got so much sun, so we have so much solar. We have yeah, true. You know all of that all of that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, you're totally right. But and you know, power companies will charge you for like 24 hours, but they can only provide you. You know, they're only providing you for whatever. I have my energy provider. They do like with smart meters, so they do like real time metering and real-time energy pricing so i can see over the course of the day you know when when it's cheap for me to use electricity like and when when there's lots of renewables in the grid for example now it's three cents per kilowatt hour for electricity but you know later in the day when around you know home time when everyone's coming home from from work prices go up to 40 50 cents per kilowatt for example so yeah so it's like worth it to like cool your house like colder you know what i mean like Make yeah. your house ice cold and then basically turn off the AC yeah. during like peak hours almost. Yeah. yeah, and there are times of day where like there's plenty of renewables in the grid. So it actually costs you money to to do feed-in. So right now, 
because we have so many renewables in the grid, if I was to feed back into the grid from my solar, it would actually cost me four cents per kilowatt. Where when it's the other way around, when there's not many renewables in the in the grid and there's a high demand, you know, I can get 60, 70 cents per kilowatt to feed back in. So it's um it's an interesting thing. Oh you know, it's cold. So Re will always just turn the heater on because she's cold. I'm like, or or she'll put the washing on because I need to do a load of washing. I'm like, yeah, okay. We need to do a load of washing today, but we don't have to do it at 8 a.m. We could do it at 10.30 when electricity is cheaper. And she's like, no, yeah, stop exactly. So this is, this is like the <laughs> whole idea. I'm not here for that, yeah. Yeah, this is the whole idea with this this company and like the, the idea in general is if you want to promote uptake of renewable energy, you've got to kind of leverage that renewable energy to say, okay, well, we need to spend more on renewables. We need more, you know, more solar, more wind, more battery storage so that we've got, you know, power into the night and things like that and the way you do that is by using electricity when those resources are plentiful so but um totally yeah, totally so, off topic but totally uh, off topic. i think i think i think nuclear is the way of the future man it is the the problem with nuclear is is regulation around it and i know ian landsman's a big proponent of of nuclear if you know if you can build the plants then that's fine people talk about like waste and, and they're it's always like, insanely over budget and insanely over like uh mm-hmm. deadline right yeah like, wait, that's wait, wait, exactly wait, wait. right yeah yeah for all those reasons you mentioned right yeah like, and everyone's like the oh the, the waste it's like well the waste is not actually problematic as people think it. like you know people True. have got like the the simpsons notion in their head that nuclear waste is this glowing green goop and and that's like not what it is at all the the waste is like the carbon rods and things like that that they like encase in concrete and they just put them over there it's it's um there's a lot of misconceptions around nuclear and until those like until those go away, it's just it's not gonna happen. Yeah, but you know, Australia loves to dig up coal and sell it, so <laughs> sorry for contributing to the problem. <laughs> yeah. We'll get there. We'll get there yeah. as a species someday. Hey, all, so all we've got way. one minute left to talk about the other stuff that I was gonna talk about, but I don't know if we're gonna have time. So Suffice it to say, I think we've, I, I don't know if, I can't remember if I introduced this topic or not before. Essentially, the idea that is presented in this article that I was reading, which um, you have it right in front of you, Frank DeJong, right? Mm-hmm. And the the a question of the article is, where does your validation live? So, you know, you have a couple different layers. You have like the framework slash almost like in Laravel, it's like the controller layer, right? Where you kind of, you, you validate um, requests coming in from an endpoint, uh, and then you have uh, a couple other layers in between that before it gets to your domain or before it gets to like your core classes, right? And so he presents this idea of having basically three layers, which is he calls it like framework control or, or controller layer, I believe. Which is at that point he only validates that the values that are coming in uh, that are like required or whatever he uh, like scalar values maybe like mm-hmm. they should be a string, they should be an integer, they should be a whatever, right? So make sure that the correct values are there and that they sort of match the types that they should be, right? String, integer, whatever it's going to be. Then in the second layer, uh, he doesn't call he doesn't call it the domain layer. It's the, it's the service layer as in the middle. So the service layer is where you convert those requests into like value objects or DTOs, right? And the value object would be something like for us, like a core sort of domain idea it, for us is like a Wilbur file number. So that Wilbur file number has, uh, like, it, it always has to match this particular format, and it might have a dash and might have a second piece to it, like a loss report number and things like that. 
So at the outside, at the outside layer, at the framework layer, he wouldn't validate that. He would just say, no, 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 make sure it's a, you know, an alphanumeric and that's it. And then at the second layer, he says, uh, let's convert them to value objects. Or maybe a better idea too would be like an address, right? You have the idea of an address or a phone number. Those are the things that would be converted into value objects. So like maybe you have like a phone number value object, which at that point would validate it's a valid phone number, right? There are things like, I know in the US, we have area codes and there are certain area codes that are garbage. Like Mm -hmm. on the outside, maybe on the outside layer, you would validate that it's going to be three digits dash, three digits dash, four digits, right? And in the phone number value object, you would do something like make sure that the actual area code is a valid area code. And if not, throw an exception or something like that. Yeah. And then at the third layer, you have your like domain uh, rules, right? So these are your business rules. So you might, for instance, if you have like a dial phone number controller, for example, let's just call it that dial phone number controller. And on the outside, you have uh, the phone number is required and it needs to be alphanumeric. Okay, fine. The second layer in the service layer, you have a phone number value object. And in that place, you make sure that it is a valid area code. And then in the domain layer, you would say, um, I am going to check if I've dialed this phone number in the last two minutes or something like that, or in the last day, maybe, right? I don't want to call this phone. I don't want to call this phone more than once every day. So the domain is where you would do that sort of uh, domain logic, right? And so those three layers... Um, and it's been really helpful uh, for applications of sufficient size. Like a lot of times, you know, the the thing that I do as or I have done is you just kind of chuck it all in the very outside layer, the framework, right? You just, uh, you'd all let it sit at the very, very top and that's fine, but it's not fine because you end up using these value objects and these domain rules a lot of other places, right? And if you don't do it right, then what you end up having to do is validate again over and over in these different layers doing the same things because you're not sure what's been validated and what hasn't. And so if you know that at the domain layer, you're getting a value object, which has already been, you know, already been validated. There's a value object. It's, it's good to go. Like I know for sure that this is all set, right? And the value object is looking at the request, which has been validated, right? This, this data is, I know at least alphanumeric and it has these dashes in it in these places, right? It's been really helpful to kind of separate out where do I actually do the validation? Where do I actually handle uh, exceptions. And the only issue with this is, is there's a little bit more work when you throw exceptions, those low, those lower levels, uh, you have to handle uh, how you're returning those to the user, right? How you're handling those validation exceptions and passing them back to the user, which is a little bit more work than just doing it all on the very outside. But it's been interesting. So anyway, we'll share that in the show notes. Uh, I think it's a really good read. And mm-hmm. it's been helpful for me. So hopefully it'll be helpful for you too. I've, um, some of our stuff at work, we do like validation in basically from the database like we put all the rules in the database and we can like swap out fields and rules based on that and so what we do is like in the in the belly of like our code you can actually have a a validate request like you can create your own request object and instantiate out of the container so you can do app colon colon make my special snowflake request colon colon class and laravel because it's a a request object it will handle that it will run Mm -hmm. the validation and if mm-hmm. the validation yep. fails, it'll throw the exception. It'll bubble all the way back up to the top. And so we've used that in a few places where we've needed to do like our own validation, but not at like the request layer. We've done it like a couple of sure. layers deeper. And that and that works reasonably well in having a con- consistent response format as well, which is... And you, you don't not... reinvent the rules and stuff either, right? Correct. Yeah. So... You still get all the, all the niceties of having all the Laravel rules and it throws a validation, inst- uh, validation exception. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you already know how to handle that. 
Yeah, well, it's already handled by the framework, which is which is That's nice as saying. well. Yeah. Um, right. So you know that kind of stuff. There there are some creative ways to go about that without having to do your own like validation handling or throwing your own exceptions and things like that. You can you can still wrap it up. It's just a, a slightly different approach to it, which has worked now that we're kind of trying to normalize a lot of the stuff to get closer to Laravel. So yeah, we'll put the we'll put that link in the show notes. I think oh, we put it in last last week. Um, maybe, um, but we spoke about it a bit more this week. So we'll, we'll put that in the show notes again. You can read it a second time. I'll put one other one in there too. Um, this is actually a gist from TJ Miller on how he did basically what, exactly what you're talking about with this idea of newing up a request mm-hmm. and then resolving it out of container. I think I think on those requests, those form requests, I think there's like on resolution or something like yeah, validates, that. Yeah, validates validates on when resolved or something like that when resolved that's what it is when Mm -hmm. resolved and so when resolved will run uh the validation um and so anyway yeah this is a gist that tj miller had created that allows you to do um you know if you if you have those custom requests that are extending form requests and you want to test them he this is just a little gist as to how you can do that right so you make a new request and you bind that into the container the app request you make the new request and then you say resolve my specific request mm-hmm. right and it basically takes that request value that is already in the container runs it through your validation rules and then returns or throws the validation exception if it's false or if it fails and then you can check to see if the errors contain the token uh, or i'm sorry not the token but the key that you're mm-hmm. looking for so it's a cool little gist. It's just two files, and I've referenced it a couple times when, mm. when uh, doing this recently. So it's an oldie, but a goodie. It was three years ago. I looked it up in Telegram the other day. I was like, I remember TJ was doing this. So, <laughs> anyway, shout out yeah, to TJ Miller. Nice thing about that is it'll inject the uh, the request instance for you as well. Exactly. Yeah, really nice. So awesome. This was episode 123. Thanks for hanging out with us at northmeetsouth.audio slash 123 for show notes. Hit us up in uh, your, sorry, rate us up in your podcast of choice. Five stars would be appreciated. I'm Michael Bruder at Jacob Bennett. Thanks for the Vivo. See you, everybody. And the flip flop. Bye. Bye.